0: Welcome to the Future Tech edition of the Finding Genius Podcast. Forget frequently asked questions, forget common sense, common knowledge, or Googling for information. How about advice from a genius in their field instead? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are the geniuses of their profession. Richard has made it his life's mission to interview the geniuses of their fields in areas such as AI, 3D printing, quantum computing, blockchain and Bitcoin and more. Don't miss out on amazing podcasts with geniuses. Review us on iTunes or wherever you listen and go to futuretech.findinggeniuspodcast.com and subscribe today.
1: Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Future Tech and Finding Genius podcast series. I have Claudia Gray. Uh, she's the head of Kids Allergy Pediatric and Allergy Center. She's a pediatrician there, and she has a subspecialty uh, accreditation, and I guess it's a weird word, aller- allergology? I mean, the That's study right. of allergies? Hmm. <laughs> Interesting, I never heard that. Okay. Well, Claudia, thanks for coming. How are you doing?
2: That's a pleasure. Hi, Rich. Uh, thanks pl- Thanks for inviting me onto your podcast.
1: I know it's late for you, so I appreciate you being here. So, uh, very good. No problem. So, so, what? Uh, why the interest in um, pediatrics, and then why the focus in allergies?
2: Oh, well, that's that's quite a big question, Rich. <laughs> Since I started studying to become a doctor, I think my interest was always sparked by the little people and pediatrics. So that was a bit of a no-brainer for me. In South Africa, such as in the states, you you train generally as a doctor first. And then you specialize in pediatrics, which I actually did in London in England. And then whilst I was specializing, you know, the allergy world was, was suddenly becoming big and interesting because allergies were escalating and, and, and it, it suddenly became a sub-specialisation of pediatrics and family medicine and, and adult medicine. So I opted for it, um, opted for it uh, out of interest, um, and had really good training in the United Kingdom, which stood me in excellent stead when I came back to South Africa, my home country, about 10 years ago.
1: So are allergies, um, I mean, would they be classified as an autoimmune condition or would they be, um, I mean, they're an immune response apparently, but uh, what's your general classification of how they act?
2: Sure, Rich. Well, it's it's probably important for the audience to understand what an immune condition is. It in involves your own immune system reacting. So an autoimmune condition would be if you react against yourself. So for example, rheumatoid arthritis or some forms of thyroid disease. But an allergy is an immune reaction to something external. So not to your own body. It's, it's not autoimmune. It's a different immune response. So it's an immune response to an external allergen, which is supposed to be harmless. But our bodies are quite mischievous and react in uh, in an overreactive way to normally harmless allergens.
1: From what I know of uh, allergy shots, I guess an allergy can take two paths. It can either worsen where the person gets more and more sensitive to it and the effects get worse. Or the, I guess with allergy shots or other methods, the person can get desensitized to it. Is that the case? And uh, How do those pathways look?
2: Sure, Rich. The the world of allergies, first of all, is an enormous one, and it's not as straightforward as saying it gets better or it gets worse. We must remember that the field of allergology entails asthma, eczema, food allergies, um, uh, environmental allergies, uh, gut allergies, drug allergies, insect venom allergies. So it's an enormous world and every different aspect of allergy would have a different course. For example, eczema might improve over time. Asthma may improve over time. Certain food allergies like cow's milk and soya and wheat and indeed egg improve over time in the majority of cases. Whereas some other allergies like nut allergies possibly or beasting allergies could worsen over time. So it depends entirely on which allergy we are talking about. And obviously the person who's specialized in allergology will know the general pathway and thus be able to advise the patient accordingly. When you talk about allergy shots, it's very specific desensitization, making your body less reactive or tricking your body into liking something that you're allergic to rather than hating it. Um, and that's a process where you, whereby you give tiny amounts of the allergen over time and then increasing and increasing and increasing in a very controlled environment. And that can be used for certain allergies, such as those in the air, like dust mite or grass. It can be used for insects, like bee stings or wasp stings. And recently, the desensitization process has spilled over also into the food allergy world. So you may have heard of the concept of peanut desensitization, for example. So your question initially, does it get better or worse? It depends entirely on the type of allergy.
1: So what does that say about the underlying mechanisms that probably govern you know, if things are uh, able to get better or worse with tiny exposures that build
2: Now, this is a very complex subject. Um, uh, The mechanisms by which you, you know, in some cases, as I mentioned, allergies automatically get better over time. So your own body develops tolerance. In other words, it, it produces the the protective chemicals rather than the reactive chemicals. And when you give allergy shots or you're desensitized, you're doing that artificially. So you are tricking your body into slowly producing protective or blocking antibodies um, and and, and a whole range of chemicals or cytokines which are more protective and tolerant rather than reactive and potentially dangerous.
1: So can you... uh... Maybe talk about literally maybe some of the nuts and bolts of the responses. And again, one that worsens over time. What's different about that response than one that improves over time when you do develop an immunity or tolerance?
2: Okay, so let me give you an example of food allergies. So first of all, a young child um, possibly with a family history of eczema or food allergies and particularly a young child with early onset eczema is at a greatly increased risk of developing food allergies. However, even if you don't have a risk factor for food allergies, nowadays up to 10% of little children have some form of a food allergy. Let's imagine the scenario. You get a young baby into your clinic. They are four months old. They are riddled with eczema. As part of your workup, you do allergy tests. Um, uh, I often use the skin prick test uh, for allergy tests. And it comes up to egg and to peanut, which is a common scenario. So you can counsel them with the egg that it's likely to be an allergy that they will outgrow. And step by step, you see them once a year and you redo the tests and you see what's happening are the test sizes getting smaller, then at some stage you start introducing it in the baked form, for example, like a biscuit or a cookie. And eventually they are able to tolerate proper eggs. So that's the normal, regular course for an egg allergy. However, if they come up positive to peanut, for example, highly positive, if they come up just a little bit positive, then nowadays we're quite proactive and we actually often challenge those kids to see if we can maybe still avoid the full-blown allergy. But let's say they come up highly positive to peanut or have reacted to peanut in the past, then we give a more guarded prognosis because only 10 to 20% of people outgrow peanut allergies. So it's an allergy for life. And very often, nut allergies escalate it over time. So it is a lot more of a worrisome allergy in the majority of cases than for example an egg allergy. And then you'd follow up this peanut allergic kid over time and in rare cases you'll find it reducing and then you celebrate <laughs> and introduce the peanut. But in the majority of cases it sticks around or gets worse. And then you could think about in certain cases a process such as desensitization which is not a cure but it helps them to tolerate a little bit more before they react, and often takes the fear out of daily activities such as going to school, going to restaurants where they might be exposed to peanut. Does that make sense, or would you like another example?
1: No, that makes that makes a lot of sense. And I know that you're on the clinical side of it, but in order for things to improve and for science to say, oh, you have peanut allergy for life. Sorry, buddy. You know, what in terms of the science and the hardcore biology. Do you have insight or have you read papers or do you know what's happening? Why, like what are some of the main reasons how allergies happen? What's, what's literally happening in the body? Is that known yet?
2: Well, to a certain extent, um, uh, Richard, it's not entirely known why allergies are on the increase. Um, that's a different story that's worth talking about. Um, but why allergies happen? Yeah, I mean, we have a whole array of chemicals and hormones and, and, and cytokines in our bodies, which are supposed to be, and immune systems, which are supposed to be in harmony in a certain way if you're tolerant, for example, if you're tolerant to peanuts, so that would be the that would be the default reaction. The majority of people are tolerant, and then in some cases the balance between the cytokines, for example, the the T cells goes a little bit off, and um, it becomes skewed in a certain direction and produces cytokines or antibodies or chemicals that tend. To make you allergenic. So it's all about the balance between the protective cytokines and the reactive uh, cytokines. And, you know, as with any medical condition, we always say that this depends on genetic factors as well as environmental factors. And a lot of the environmental factors nowadays are you know, coined epigenetic factors so that they actually can change the expression of your genes. And that, apart from all these chemical reactions and these chemical balances or imbalances, you may need additional risk factors. For example, late exposure to solids might be a risk factor for developing an, an allergy. Exposure to pollution exposure to infections at certain vulnerable stages of your life. So it seems to be a multifactorial thing at the cellular level and then also at the sort of environmental level that act together together with your genetics to cause you to express things in different ways. And this is constantly researched and constantly the tiny little molecules are being are becoming known and act as targets then for certain drugs to work and try and block them.
1: So in terms of uh, peanut allergies, allergies, I did interview someone that, that said now they're able, in some cases, to give tiny, tiny amounts and build up a tolerance. What what changed in figuring out how to be able to do that? And do you employ that when it's you're able to?
2: Yeah, so I talked about that earlier on when we talked about egg versus peanut, saying a, a child who said six years old and you're seeing that their peanut allergy isn't budging, they may be a good candidate for what we call desensitization. And that's the process of giving them these tiny amounts and increasing over time. So that's quite commonplace in in in, in you know aller- allergy practices uh, these these days. So yes we do employ that uh, mechanism but it's absolute, needs to be made absolutely clear to the patient that this is not a cure. While they're taking it, they are protected. But in the vast majority of cases, as soon as they stop taking their regular tiny little dose, which they need to see as a medicine rather than as a food, then they can lose all the good um, that's been done. Where did this idea originally come from? Well, it probably partly originated in the studies um, which showed that one of the risk factors for peanut allergy was withholding peanut for too long to little kids. In fact, a protective factor in countries like Israel, where they eat lots of peanut early on, seems to be exactly that early introduction. So this uh, 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 introduced the whole concept that early oral exposure is probably best for developing tolerance or for your body living in harmony with peanut. And that led to studies like the huge leap study learning earlier about peanut study in the UK, which proved that in children at high risk of allergies, earlier peanut introduction is actually better. And this whole notion of oral tolerance developing by oral exposure, I guess was one of the things that sparked an interest in desensitization. Together with the fact that we, we've been using uh, the desensitization concept for bee allergies, for house mite allergies, etc. cetera, for a very, very long time. But it's only recently that peanut allergy, you know, those, giving those tiny amounts to try and kind of effect a cure, it's only recently that that's come into practice because we've had now big studies showing the potential benefit.
1: Yeah, it seems like a difficult conundrum. You know, if you don't have a certain food, let's say you take that out of your diet or you know, your children never have a certain food, in a way it could predispose them maybe to getting an allergy to it. But then again, if you give them the food, they don't react well to it, even if it's not life-threatening, you know, you would think, oh, I don't want to do that. I don't want to hurt them. And maybe it's not good for them to be exposed to something that apparently doesn't seem to go well with them. So like, well, what do you do, you know, as a, yeah, as a parent, as, as a child? As a
2: so I'd say it, it it was a conundrum initially. And unfortunately over the last, yeah, for 15, 20 years, the whole teaching was to, especially in high-risk kids, such as kids with family history or kids with eczema who are at high risk of food allergies to say to those parents, oh, don't give egg till they're a year or don't give nuts till they're three years. That used to be the teaching. But interestingly, that went in parallel with a massive increase in food allergies. So it's certainly not protective. And then started all the studies showing that actually Earlier introduction is a better idea for the at risk children because there's still, there seems to be a window of opportunity in which you can still influence your immune system and kind of trick it into liking certain allergens rather than rejecting them. So, for example, now if I get a patient in my practice, just giving you a practical example, a four month old baby riddled with eczema and um, they breastfed, they haven't started solids yet. Um, As part of the workup, we do food allergy screening. We see that the tests are negative to peanut. We say to those parents, start solids and get peanut in within the next two months because it will actually potentially protect your child. So the whole notion of delayed introduction has actually backfired on us and it's turned a 360 and it's now the notion of early introduction. And actually the world over in the last five years or so, that's become the general advice. Early introduction, especially of allergens such as egg and peanut before the age of eight to 10 months is actually probably beneficial to most patients. If the patient is extremely high risk, so a patient with bad eczema, then I'd always routinely test them first. If they come up very high to peanut, then unfortunately it's too late and they've already developed that peanut allergy. But in many cases, even if they have a small positive or a negative, you get peanut in and you can try and prevent this peanut allergy, which is very satisfying and, and, and of benefit to the patient who may otherwise have developed a lifelong allergy. So, our strategies, our advice, for, young, for parents of young children has changed. And in the American pediatric guidelines, the UK guidelines, the South African guidelines, the notion of earlier introduction of egg and peanut is now written in the guidelines. So that's what we are teaching the parents of young children.
1: Do you, um, are there certain allergies you just rarely see in four or six month olds that you see commonly in, you know, one, two, three year olds?
2: Um. That depends on the allergies you're talking about, so there's a there's an interesting difference between food allergies and environmental allergies. So food allergies are often established relatively early, and you know by about a year of age you will have a, a very accurate picture of what that kid is allergic to or not with food allergies. It, it kind of peaks and it stays there and sometimes improves over time. Uh, so in terms of food allergies, not really. They're established early and it depends on when the kids are, are exposed to that allergen that it might show that they're already allergic. Aero allergens, so things in the air like grass pollen and, and house dust mite, follows an interesting pattern. So in the first two years of life, kids tend to get allergic to what they're exposed to. So if they spend more time indoors during that time of their lives, crawling around on floors and sleeping in beds, they're more likely to be allergic to indoor allergens such as house dust mite and mold and and you know the, the dander of their doggies and their kitties. Whereas as they get older, sort of two, three, four years of age, and their interests go into the garden and they run around on the grass, then they can develop outside allergies such as grass pollen allergy. So yes, allergies can change over time with age. Food allergies peak early and then the the, the environmental allergies peak later.
1: Yeah, it's hard to know what to do. I mean, you know, my kids are older, but if I was to have them now, I don't know what I would do. Don't expose them, expose them. Take them outside, don't take them outside. Like what is there a I, mean, I guess you just have to react to what you see in a given situation. But beyond that, is there any advice yeah. you have for parents that don't know what sure.
2: to do? Sure. Yeah. So as part of allergy prevention strategies, I mean, the concept of early solid and allergen introduction is a real one. So that's generally advisable. If your child is already showing signs of allergies, such as eczema, they're better off seeing a specialist before you start solids in my book. In terms of exposing them to the outside, do so as much as possible. Kids need to be exposed to dirt. Kids need to be exposed to the outside world. It's it's part of life, and actually it's quite good for their immune systems as well. So if you have a dog or cat in the house, it's it's not a negative effect on a child. It, it can actually be pretty, pretty positive. What is absolutely evident is that an, an eczema skin, so a broken skin, is a huge risk factor for allergies. So most parents in my book should be advised to really look after a kid's skin from the word go I always said all begins with the skin so studies have shown that putting on emollients which are sort of bland um, moisturizers from the word go can actually protect a kid against eczema and then it can protect you in some cases against the whole spiral of allergies food allergies error allergies etc so advice to young parents breastfeed if possible don't smoke at all Give the kid a a varied, introduce solids between four and six months when they're ready. Um, Introduce a very, varied diet in the first year of life. There's no need to hold back on allergens such as egg and peanut. If your kid is already showing signs of allergies, rather see an allergist who know what they're talking about. Um, expose them to dirt, expose them to the outside, let them go and have fun. You know, there's a lot of work now saying if you live too cleanly, <laughs> you can also increase your risk of allergies. And that's called the microbial hypothesis, uh, suggesting that, uh, you know, with, with, with all the stuff, the fast foods we eat, the the the, the dishwasher cleaning everything at seventy degrees Celsius. Um, everything is clean. Kids are not spending enough time outdoors. They're not getting mud on their hands, and actually, that can shift our our, our bacteria and our gut towards a, a negative state where they don't allow our immune system to mature in a good way so certainly let your kids go outside and play in the mud (laughs) and also moisturize their skin don't use soapy products don't use harsh products anything that can reduce the skin barrier because that's a huge risk factor for eczema and allergies
1: yeah this may be a stupid question but is it obvious if your child's having allergies or is it not obvious in some cases and if so what are the signs
2: Okay. In fact, it's a very excellent question because allergies are often used as an excuse for a lot of conditions. So remember that allergy is a huge field. So it can be pretty obvious if your kid has eczema, they'll have a rough skin, red patches, extremely itchy and and unhappy. And that needs urgent attention. Because as I said, eczema is a huge risk factor for developing further allergies like food allergies. Mm. So that's eczema. If your child has a food allergy, it may be subtle, it may be obvious. There are some delayed allergies which can cause severe colic or blood in the stool or reflux. So, you know, if a mother's worried about colic beyond what's considered normal, it may be worth speaking to her doctor about that. Uh, immediate type food allergies are fairly obvious the child eats something and 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 within minutes to an hour or two they develop hives or swelling or vomiting diarrhea if they're very unlucky shortness of breath so those are immediate type food allergies that's relatively evident in terms of the respiratory allergies this is a lot more subtle um, because Viruses can mimic many allergies. And, you know, we often get little kids the age of one and two with a constant snotty nose, and the kid says, Oh, my child's got terrible allergies. And actually, they don't. They're just getting the normal childhood colds one after the next which is pretty irregular for a young child. Um, Asthma, you know, you can say, oh, my child's chesty, they've got asthma, they've got allergies, but actually they've just got a snotty nose that's dripping down and, and causing a wet cough, or they've just got a virus that's provoking a temporary wheeze. So it takes quite a lot of, you know, experience looking at the age group, looking at the child, taking a great history, doing some allergy tests to try and decipher whether it's infection or allergies in that case, Even drug allergies can be mimicked by other things. A lot of kids have a history of being ill. They're given a a medication, say penicillin, and two days later they break out in a rash. And then they say, oh, my kid is penicillin allergic. And actually that rash may well just be the rash of the virus, which often breaks out only a day or two or three into the illness. So you are quite right. There are many conditions that can mimic allergies. Um, So that's why it's actually really important to... To visit, and, and in the States and in, in South Africa and in the UK, there are people who are specifically trained in, in allergology, and it may well be worth visiting them to try and tease out the real allergies from the, the pseudo-allergies.
1: Why, why do you think um, eczema is predisposes kids to other allergies? Do you think maybe it's because uh, the allergens themselves now have an entry path into the body they wouldn't normally have?
2: which you actually, you've hit the nail on the head. And this is something which you've understood in one interview, (laughs) but it's taken only in the last 10 years that there's really proof for that. So if you have an eczema skin, it's almost like missing the top layer of your skin, really. Um, The the, the protective layer of your skin is broken. And if you have a broken skin, it loses some of its function. So you lose more water. The skin becomes more dry. You haven't got the protection against normal skin infections as much. So you're more prone to infections such as boils and, and staph aureus. But thirdly it's now really been demonstrated that if you have a cracked open uh, skin with a, a barrier that's a little bit broken, allergens can get through that skin. So if dad's eating a peanut butter sandwich next door, then holds his baby with eczema, the peanut butter can actually get through the skin. And the skin is not that well equipped to deal with allergens. It kind of says, "Whoa, what's this? Is this a parasite? And it sets up a response in some cases. So as I said earlier, it seems much better to meet foods initially through the gut than through the skin. So you're quite right. A broken eczema skin acts as a pathway for allergens to actually get in through that cracked skin. Food allergies, as well as error allergies, a cat cat hairs, um, a house dust mite, etc. they can even get through the cracked skin.
1: Is it, so, Yeah. I don't know much about eczema. I'm picturing red rashes on someone's skin, but, um, can eczema be as subtle or as simple as just cracked skin or dry skin? Or you know, like, what is the beginning of eczema look like?
2: Yeah, the the the, the Greek the, the the meaning in Greek of eczema is to boil over, so it's normally a little bit more than just a dry skin. Although dry skin can be the first, very initial stage of eczema, so there are quite a few hallmarks. It's normally dry, it's rough, it's erythematous or red. It, it can be papular. It can have tiny little blisters in the acute stage. In the chronic stage, eczema can become rough and and, and like kinified, which means like leather. So it's a fairly typical rash, which develops um, at different stages at, uh, of life in, in different places. The young babies often have it on the, the cheeks of the face and, and the trunk. Older kids often in the creases. Um, uh, adults often, for example, on hands. So the pattern changes over time. Uh, And one of the huge hallmarks of eczema is an intense itching. It's a very, very itchy condition. So there are some rough skin conditions that... Uh, can look similar to 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 eczema, for example, a condition called keratosis polaris, which is really just rough skin on the upper arms, and that can run in families but the, but the, the difference there is that it 's not itchy, whereas eczema is incredibly itchy it 's called the itch that scratches, and of course, if a kid is itchy they 're irritable, they scratch, and scratching makes it even worse. Um, So it's a fairly typical uh, skin condition to to diagnose and it should be diagnosed promptly because it can be treated very effectively. It can't be cured, time may cure it, but you you really can manage uh, eczema very effectively with suitable moisturizers, anti-inflammatories, if there's a flare, sometimes even proactive treatment with regular anti-inflammatories. There's been a lot of progress in the last few years on eczema management.
1: Okay. Well, interesting. Very good. So what are some resources for parents, uh, people dealing with young kids? Are all pediatricians going to be aware of what you're aware of? Or do you think some are still kind of in the old school ways? Like what are some of the hallmarks they should look for when they're looking for help?
2: Yeah. Um, You know, one one would hope that most pediatricians are up to date with this information, but if you're not necessarily specialized in allergies, you've, Got a lot to deal with, so you might not necessarily know all the nuts and bolts. But as I said, uh, you know, a, a, a formal subspecialty or super specialty of, of pediatrics and family medicine and physicians is now allergology. So dotted all over the country and the states, for example, will be several allergy centers, and that's probably your best resource if you are particularly worried about an allergy or your family doctor, pediatrician in the first place, and then ask them to refer if it's not that clear. Um, You know, as with most things these days, (laughs) Dr. Google can be a little bit dangerous (laughs) and, uh, you know, give, give people false ideas. And certainly there are some cranky tests out there which claim to test for allergies and certainly have no scientific backing. So rather discuss Tests uh, with with your doctor to make sure they have the correct tests at the correct time. There are many supportive websites. Um, The American Academy of of Allergy and and Immunology has a website. Uh, Our South African Allergy Foundation has a website. The Allergy UK. In the UK, there are some excellent refutable sources, and the Australian uh, Academy of Allergy has an excellent website. So uh, the, those are really good resources for parents, and most of them have a section for the layperson. But certainly, I wouldn't go googling too much on, you know, resources that maybe um, um, aren't necessarily spreading scientifically correct information, and especially tests which have no scientific backing. Luckily, as I said, allergologists or allergists are available, and they're probably your best resource, especially if you suffer from some weird symptoms or severe symptoms remember food allergies can be life-threatening it's really important to get the correct information and the correct treatment
1: one last question i wanted to ask you i forgot um, there are some tests that test you know 100 different foods or 300 different foods and i spoke to one allergist, you know allergologist and it was like oh then, then you won't eat things that you need to eat and you'll have a very restrictive diet and, you know what are your thoughts on these uh multiple food allergy
2: tests? Yeah, uh, it's it's it lies in the eye of the interpreter a lot of the time and in the understanding. So it depends on which tests you're talking about. There are sort of alternative tests called IgG tests, which unfortunately are not a good reflection of allergies. They are out there. They are accessible to patients. Patients take the test. It does test to thousands or hundreds of things, And it usually pretty much comes up with the same pattern and patients end up with a very restrictive diet, which has actually got nothing to do with their symptoms in the first place. So the IgG-based tests, unfortunately, are not scientifically founded. There are some multiplex tests, which are proper allergy tests, Uh, uh, which are different, which which look at the IgE uh, allergy status. And they do often come up with false positives. So my personal practice is not to do batch testing because you can come up with so many false positives that then cause confusion my personal practice is to be very, to do very specified testing and as a rule of thumb if a patient or a kid is tolerating a food without any obvious immediate reactions or side effects keep it in their diet no matter what the food allergy tests say there are many many false positive tests so discuss the test with your family doctor or, or, or allergist don't go for the alternative tests they are not scientifically valid and with having the real tests it also needs an expert to interpret them and to see what's a real allergy, what's maybe a cross reactivity. In other words, your body is misinterpreting one of the allergies for another allergy and you could actually carry on eating that food.
1: Well very good. Well Claudia, what's the best way for people to get in touch with you if they're local to you or if not, you know, how can they learn more about your practice and then I want you perhaps
2: Sure. Uh, Rich, so I have a, um, a a private allergy center called the Kids Allergy Center. It's in Cape Town in South Africa. We offer all the latest stuff. Um, you know, obviously we have many, many years of experience with children and, and allergies and, and even adults come through the door looking for answers and we're happy to address all of those. We do skin prick testing on the spot. We do desensitization. We do bee jabs. We do general pediatrics, so we, uh, food challenges. So we have a wide range of services that we offer. Um, The website address is www.kidsallergy, which is Um, K-I-D-S-A-L-L-E-R-G-Y.co.za. Obviously, to keep up my academic stuff, I'm also affiliated to the University of Cape Town, where I'm an associate professor in pediatrics, and I do session sessions in the academic and the local academic hospital as well but if anyone's ever in south africa and wants a a consultation um the private system in south africa is very affordable very approachable and it's relatively easy to get appointments and we also do online bookings which is quite nice for the chance well
1: that's great well Claudia I know it's late where you are and I really appreciate you coming so thanks for being here
0: that's an absolute pleasure anytime You've been listening to the Future Tech edition of the Finding Genius Podcast. This podcast is information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed. Review us on iTunes or wherever you listen and subscribe today by going to futuretech.findinggeniuspodcast.com.